for those of us that are in this room, we're going to eventually be looking at three major passages for today's lesson, among others, but three that I will ask you to eventually turn to. If you have a Bible, or you should have a, a, some way to read the Bible close to you, phone, app, scrolls, whatever you use. Uh, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to start there at some point. Sorry, just trying to get my mic here all figured out. I'll just put it in my pocket. We're continuing on our series on discipleship. And we have for a while been talking about discipleship in the home because that is a very important place where discipleship takes place. We think of discipleship in terms of some sort of program or meeting with other people outside of the home. And those things are good and should be doing but there's a lot of it that should be happening in the home. And some of you might say, well, I'm not married, uh, I'm not planning on having a family, and why should I be sitting through this? Well, because the Bible says that you have been called by God to disciple others that might be going through that. And you don't have to, there's a fallacy in, in our thinking that, unless, that says unless you have gone through something, you cannot help other people have, that are going through something. So if you think about it, if that's a true statement, that unless you've gone through something, you can't really speak into that person's situation, then the best marriage counselor will be somebody who's divorced seven times because they've gone through trouble seven times, so they might be able to help you. And you can see there's a fallacy in that thinking, right? So if we have the Bible, the Bible's sufficient, and we can use that to train other people, even if we haven't personally gone through those things, because what the Bible says is true regardless of experience. Does it make sense to y'all that we don't have, the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is so that we don't have to make the same mistakes as the author did. Solomon is writing that book, perhaps older in his reign, to to say, look, I've tried all these things apart from God, none of them worked, just learn from my experience, Don't, don't try to do what's going on, just really at the end of the day, just be faithful to the God of your youth and keep His commandments. That's really all, all that you need to do instead of trying to explore all these other things. So listen carefully, even if you're not, um, you know, you have kids at home, if you're, not, if you're not married, if you're not planning on, on getting married, this is uh, pertinent to you. And it's pertinent to all of us because we are all called to be involved in each other's lives as we help each other become more like Jesus Christ. On this last lesson uh, on discipleship in the context of the family, I wanted to, for us to consider uh, a Christian philosophy of education. And I think that the order of the words are very important. It's not a philosophy of Christian education, as if you can have some other philosophy of non-Christian education is a Christian philosophy of education, which is another way of saying a biblical philosophy of education. What does the Bible say concerning education in general? That's the goal for today. Some of you are going to, may have a hard time listening to this, which you might say, well, that's every week we have a hard time listening to you. <laughs> that might be the case. Um, 
or you might say, oh, you haven't listened for you, from you for a while, so it would be hard to listen for you. But open it with open hearts, with open minds. Uh, I try to really, I, I think I'm anchoring everything I'm saying on the, in the Word of God, on the Word of God. So, and if you want to uh, talk to me about it and debate, I'm happy to do it as long as you do from here. Okay? No issues about being questioned about my interpretations. But I'm not willing to debate anybody that says, I know what the Bible says, but... Because then we are starting from two super different worldviews. One that says that doesn't matter what the Bible says, and the one that says, yes, it matters 100% what the Bible says. So um, let's listen with open minds, open hearts, as we go from here. But any discussion about education has to start with the place of Christ in all matters. Okay, so does everybody know what a syllogism is? It's the basis of Aristotelian logic. Syllogism, we have two premises, a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion that follows from those premises. My major premise for today's lesson is that Christ... Is, in, is the head and gets to tell us how we do all things. Christ is the head and gets, gets to tell us how we do all things. That's the major. The minor premise is education is part of all things. What is the conclusion then from that syllogism? Therefore, if Christ gets to tell us how to do all things, Education is part of all things. What's the only conclusion from this particular syllogism? I'm going to try to prove that this is true, but what's the conclusion from this syllogism? Christ has to tell us how to educate. When, exactly. So that's kind of what we're going to try to do today. In Romans 11, uh, Paul concludes that all things are to, the, to Christ, to going back to Him, to His praise, to His glory, in Romans 11, verse 36, and I want you to notice the proposition, the prepositions. In, in Romans 11, 36, Paul says, for of him, or, or from him, and so from him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's a, it's a very, very, very broad statement, right? Uh, it, everything comes from Christ. Every, everything was created through Christ, and everything is for Him, is returning to, to Him. So that includes education, because it includes everything in life. Paul also says that even in the simplest matters of life, glorifying God must be intended. Even in the simplest thing we do, the glory of God has to be the intention of doing that. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, so the most mundane, banal things of life, whether for you eat or drink, and then he includes this little pesky word, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you can see that Paul expects the follower of Jesus Christ to have everything that they do be to the glory of Christ. Paul also says that all things are given to Christ 
and that he is the king over all things. In Ephesians 1.22, Paul says, And he, that's the Father, put all things under his feet, that's the, the Son, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now, what, what does it mean that the Father put everything under the feet of the Son? And yet, what, what's, the, what's the picture? Adam. Subjection and conquering. Subjection and conquering, yes. What else? So the picture here is a conquering king where everything, that, all the nations that were conquered are bowing down at his feet. That's what it means to be under his feet. They're bowing down as slaves to the conquering king. And Paul tells us that that is Christ and everything else. Bowing down to him. Paul also teaches us that Christ is the, the originator of all things and that they, the very reason for their creation is his own enjoyment. He says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created that are in, the, in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. To bring glory to him. To praise him. And one last passage as, as we establish that major premise. Remember the major premise is all things are uh, must be done, uh, the, Christ is the king of all things, the head of all things, and he gets to tell us how we do all things. So establishing that major premise, one last thing is, as we laid the foundation for talking about education in all, in all matters, Christ must have the preeminence. Christ must be first. Christ must be exalted in all things. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So that, that's part of our thinking when we think about education, because that's how we should think about everything else in life. So since the, the simplest matters of life are to be done in order to magnify God, and since Christ is to be the king over all things, and since Christ is to have the preeminence in all things, then we must conclude that Christ must have the preeminence in education. Not only religious education, but all education. So, as in all other matters of life, a Christian must provide for their children an education that has God in Christ at the center of it and His Word permeating every aspect of it. Are you following my logic with me so far? If everything is supposed to be done for the glory of God, and if discipleship is part of becoming more like Christ in all areas of life, children's education, which is the major area of their discipleship, must be the kind of education that has God in Christ at the center of it and is preparing them to become more and more like Christ. Any questions or thoughts before we continue? All right, so let's, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So we're starting to think of, uh, we're starting to think Christianly about education. 
The first thing I want you to think is this. God has instituted several governments among men. And I don't mean like state government, local government, federal government. I'm talking about spheres of government. He instituted the civil, the, 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 the civil government. He instituted the ecclesiastical government, or the church government. But he also instituted the family government. These are three different realms of government. And there may be some overlapping in some of them. But there are other areas that should fall only under one of these governments. For example, capital punishment under the New Covenant falls only under the authority of the civil government. The church doesn't de declare the death penalty because it's outside of their sphere of government. Are you, are you following me as, as far as these different, different spheres of government? Can I get a reaction like, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, or any one of those would work. So I just know where we are. Right now I'm going to log off. It actually tells me uh, that I'm not doing a good job here. Um, to the family, and to the family only, God gave the authority to make decisions about the education and training of children. We find that in... The scripture. So the family, to the family only, God gave the authority to make decisions about the education and training of children. Uh, I think this passage will help us see that. Look at verses 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign, of your, uh, a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Do you notice the pervasiveness of the instruction here in verses 7 and 8? Sitting, walking, lying down, rising up, biting on your hands, forehead, right on the door. Now, I don't think the Holy Spirit meant a literal walking around with a... No, text tattooed on their forehead or whatever, but the idea that should consume your mind, consume your heart, and consume your doing, and should govern your household, written on the door. So you can see how pervasive this, this education is that Deuteronomy is talking about. That's not just talking about religious education. It's not talking about just Sunday school. Here, as we read this, we have this impression that there is no moment when the Word of God is not present in the training of the children. Sadly, many parents think that coming to church twice a week and perhaps having 15 minutes of family devotions is all they are supposed to do. And that's not the impression that we get from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Secondly, notice how the teaching should be done. In verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently. Instructing and training our children is supposed to be in the forefront of family priorities. It's not a secondary thing. It's a primary thing in family priorities. It's not to, supposed to be given a secondary status. It's not to be done only when convenient. But it's a matter of priority. And then look at verse 5. And notice the basis, the foundation for teaching our children. In verse 5 says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that's the basis for the following instructions. 
Our love for the Lord is the basis, is the foundation, is what pushes us in training our children. Not just in the Bible, but in life in general, a little bit more later. Look at the very first verse of chapter 6. There Moses says, now this is the commandment and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you observe them in the land which you are choosing over to possess. And then he says, teach them these things in verse 6. These things refer to the content of the book of Deuteronomy. Not just the, to the immediate words, but for the whole book of Deuteronomy, because that's the purpose of Deuteronomy, to remind them of all that God has done, has promised, the covenant He's made with, with God and so on. And, uh, and if you look through the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to see that it's not just about church. It's not just about religious life. If you're to just flip through Deuteronomy, you're going to see that chapter 14 is about health and diet. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, is about debt management. Chapter 15, 12 through 18 is about slavery. Chapter 16 and 17 is about civil and criminal law. Chapter 17 is about civil government. Chapter 19, 14 is about real estate. Chapter 20 is principles of go- that govern wealth warfare. 23, 19 through 23 is accounting and finances. There's even instructions on how to build a parapet or a balcony in your house. So even city and local construction codes are in the book of Deuteronomy. Agronomy in chapter 22, engineering in the beginning of chapter 22. So these words go beyond the little parables of the New Testament or a few Psalms. It really includes God's wisdom and principles permeating everything that can be known. And this same mentality about education can be seen in the New Testament. As uh, we were at, uh, um, after the wedding, um, Kaylee, Huey, Kaylee Allen had her son, Rhett. He's not even two, I don't think. And uh, Kaylee said, okay, tell Pastor Tito your Bible verse. And then he repeated Ephesians 6, you know, 1, on, you know, obey your parents. Now, that's the verse that we all get our kids to learn the very first thing. Uh, there, uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And your fathers do not, you fathers, not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The word training means the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals. Not just Know the Bible, but know everything through the lens of the Bible, through Christ. The word bring them up means nourish up to maturity. Both of these things encompass all of life, just like Deuteronomy talked about. So here we're starting to think Christianly about education. Any questions or comments before we continue? All right, so let's keep on developing further our philosophy of a Christian philosophy of education. There are two other passages that uh, have a tremendous impact on education, which are not usually brought into the discussion of Christian education. So I'd love for you to turn to Matthew 22.
And uh, look at verse, start at verse 36. This is the greatest commandments. We don't bring this into the discussion of education very often. But here in verse 36, we have this guy that approaches Jesus. He's trying to catch him at his word. He's trying to find a way to prosecute him, to discredit him. So he comes in verse 36 and asks Matthew 22, 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All right, so what's the prime directive given to God's people? Is that they have to love them. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Another passage includes strength as well. In short, love the Lord your God with your whole person. Everything that makes you love the Lord with that. And notice also that in Christ, we are designed to love God with our bodies, with our souls, with our strength, and with what? Our minds. How much of our minds? All our minds. It follows from this proposition, not preposition anymore, proposition from this statement, that all our thinking must be based on God's word, be it history, math, or science. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible is a calculus book. I'm not saying that the Bible is a science book, but everything it says concerning math, everything it says concerning science, everything it says concerning history is true. But the way we think of these things needs to need to be grounded on the scriptures. There is a definite Christian way to teach math. There's a definite Christian way to teach philosophy, history, science, and so on, a way that acknowledges that Christ is the head. Now, Ellie, why is two plus what what's two plus two? Nick, why is two plus two four? Um, let's see here. Isaac, why is 2 plus 2, 4? Because that's what you're taught, all right. Uh, Alex, why is 2 plus 2, 4? Exactly. See, it, it, does it change the 4? Because that's what God determined it to be. Does it change the answer 4? No. Can an, uh, an, uh, a flaming atheist arrive at the conclusion that 2 plus 2 is 4? Yes. Can they know fully why 2 plus 2 is 4? No. Because you can only know fully 2 plus 2 is 4 what that means if you know that there is a God who created an orderly universe that, made, that created this language that we call math that explains how everything in the universe relates in the physical universe relate to one another. So I know that you humanity people don't like this, but math is the language of the universe. Is the language that God created for us to understand the universe. When you understand that, when you teach it from that perspective, then 2 plus 2 equals 4, it's in the Bible. Does that make sense? Because we have a God who keeps everything ordered according to his will. We have a Savior, according to Hebrews 1, that keeps the universe together by the power of his word. He simply speaks. And all the molecules work together. We're so used to the natural laws, like the gravity work, usually works constantly at 
square seconds per meter, or meters per square seconds at sea level. Uh, and there's all these constant, but these things are only constant because Christ, every nanosecond of every day, is speaking that to be that constant. The laws, the Newtonian physics, or uh, or uh, or uh, relativity is only true because Christ is constantly speaking that. The moment that Christ stops holding the universe by the power of His Word, what will happen to the universe? Creation will crumble. So you can see that um, that's foundational to how we teach. How, how the notion that God is the God of providence help us understand history and shape the way that we, we, we teach history. So you can see that um, it, it, to love the Lord with all our minds, these things have to be in place. If we or our children are not being taught to think about all academic subjects in Christian terms, or biblical terms, then we are not being taught or teaching our children to love God with all our minds. They still may learn that, but it's not going to be from the teaching that they are receiving. This means, if that's the case, then that we are doing what concerning the first commandment? If God says the most important thing is to love me with all your mind, and we're not doing that, what are we doing concerning the first commandment? Yes, and we usually tell our kids that they are disobeying God, right? So when we are not teaching from a biblical perspective, we are not just seeking an alternative way of doing things and so on, just to put in most basic, blunt, offensive terms, we are disobeying God. We're disobeying a direct command from God to love Him with all our minds. It's complicated. No, it's not. It's not complicated. Love me with all your minds. Okay? I contend then that it is impossible to teach our children to love God at all by using a system that does not allow God into it. Now, now we're getting really offensive. Okay? And I don't care what the system is. If God is not allowed in, how is that system teaching our children to teach to love God with all their minds? Teaching our kids to love God with their minds involves more than a general acquaintance with best-known Bible stories. We must strive for an education involving every aspect of the child's life. And one last passage before we deal with... uh, um, with um, objections to this idea, is 2 Corinthians 10. Turn there. For, I hope you can turn there. So we must strive for an education involving every aspect of child's life because God commands us to bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive into the obedience of Christ, 
and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we are in this fight. We are to bring down these strongholds, these, these centers of wicked power, as it were, in the spiritual realm. And we do that by bringing every captive, every thought captive to Jesus Christ. The description uh, of what we were supposed to do is the bringing captive every thought to Jesus Christ, obedience to Jesus Christ. And, you know, we think of this in subjective sense, right? You think, oh, yeah, well, I have to bring my own thoughts in subjection to Jesus Christ, which is true. But this is not what this passage means. This passage means objectively. Every thought, every, every, every way of thinking about everything needs to be brought to obedience to Jesus Christ. How we think about science, how we think about history, how we think about math, how we think about hygiene, how we think about whatever other subjects are out there, those thoughts seem to be brought captive to Jesus Christ as we work to bring down these spiritual strongholds that are throughout our culture. And there's no way to do this without a total teaching environment in submission to the Word of God. We cannot bring every thought captive by allowing some thoughts to seek autonomy. We cannot, we cannot bring every thought captive by having some who are not captive. I hope you understand how you know, we are in the era, in the age where English doesn't, language doesn't mean anything. Language can mean whatever you, but you, you, I hope you understand that that doesn't work. If we're to bring every thought captive, we cannot do that by keeping some thoughts free. Are you following me on this? Okay, all right, thanks. And we cannot bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if the only times we think Christianly are during Sunday school and family devotions. That's just not going to do it. Every area of life, every area of life needs to be brought under captivity. Any questions? So consider these three passages, Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, and 2 Corinthians 10 as foundational passages as we think about training our children for all of life, bringing every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Now, there are objections to what I'm saying. I want to try to deal with a few, see if I can answer them before even um, they are asked. Now, um, something, how about the difficult cases? No, that's the idea of what ifs. What if? What if this and that? Um, this is ruling by exception. We should never make principles based on exceptions. If it's a principle, it's a principle. It's not the one that denies the many. Okay? For example, one of the arguments to keeping abortion legal is because there are some mothers that might lose their lives in pregnancy. Therefore, we must keep abortion legal for every situation. Right? The ex- the, uh, uh, a difficult case over here of the mother that might, must, might lose her life then be used to make a general rule that, doesn't, that applies to everyone. Or what about the woman with a quadriplegic husband and five kids with the nearest Christian school located 200 miles away? How many of you know one of those? Again, I'm sure they exist. But again, let's not try to make a general principle that we are to follow based on these difficult Cases. We should not let the difficult cases dictate what the principles of God's word are. 
not a difficult case that people might bring up. I can't afford a Christian school. When I was a school principal, they would come with like a venti white bottle latte, driving a brand new car, sit across my desk and said, we need to take the kids out because we just can't afford the Christian school. How about homeschooling? How about asking the church for help? How about asking the school for help? The key question, are you sure you can afford? Or it's better said that you just won't afford. So let's be careful that we don't make general principles based on difficult situations. Yes, we have to deal with a difficult situation, but it's better to deal with them in a case-by-case scenario than trying to make this Oh, because it's very hard for these people, then we have to say that uh, nobody needs to follow this principle. Okay? What is another uh, objection? Well, experiences. People's experiences. I was actually sitting and talking to a pastor's wife who said, well, I went to public school and I survived. That's great. Though I hope more than survival for my own kids. Should survival be the goal of education? Survival is one thing. Godly education is a completely different thing altogether. So good experiences, good experiences or bad experiences should not be what dictate what we do, but the principles of the Word of God. Is it right or wrong? And then filter our own experiences from that Another one I've heard a lot is social adjustments. Uh, a, a kid might, is better socially adjusted if they go to a secular school. There are lots of opportunities, I'm told, in secular <coughs> schools. Now, it is true that in Christian school or homeschooling, athlete, uh, you know, athletics, band, dances, etc., will not be the same as in secular school, but in homeschooling, the benefit is that you might be the starting quarterback of the school's team <laughs> when you can't even hold a ball. <laughs> so there might be more opportunities in that sense, more you know, uh, opportunities in that sense. And it's true that in secular schools, the student will have more opportunities to develop socially. That is, they will have just more things to do. Right? At... Uh, Homeschooling, a Christian school, a lot of times you're not going to have the resources to have all these different extracurricular activities there. But my question is this. Is this the type of development that I want for my child? It is the, is it, is the, the social adjustment that the secular education provides the type of adjustment that I want for my own kids? Is that what we're pursuing? You're going to see a couple of things, I think. If, if a child is faithful to his or her God, she will not be very popular in a secular setting. So there will be a temptation there, right? Either to be popular or to be faithful. Often that is a temptation that is found. In, and we find that at work. If you, if you work in a secular job, you're going to find that out. Either be popular or be faithful. So social adjustment, or there's more opportunities in secular schools, may not be the best way to decide what we're going to do with our children. And then one last one, and then I'll entertain whatever questions or comments you might have, is what I call the salt and light principle. And I, I, I 
using here in the negative sense. You know, remember in Matthew, uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, God tells us that we are salt and we are light as, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians. I've had parents tell me, my child will be a witness to the lost souls in the school. That's why I'm going to go to secular school. Interestingly, that same parent will not send that kid to the Mormon VBS. He said, duh, of course. Well, why of course? What's the difference between a system that God is not allowed, that the children are told that God is, doesn't exist or is not allowed in, or a system that teaches a false God? What's the difference? Why shouldn't we send our kids then? If, it's, if we're going to send our kids to the secular school to be salt and light, why not send them to the Mormon VBS? To be salt and light there. Objectively, there's no difference. Right? Or send the, let's send all our elementary school kids to be missionaries in India for three weeks. Let's find the most Hindu place and send them there. And say, you're crazy. They're not prepared for that. Exactly. That's exactly the point. So, so the moral responsibility of parents with regard to education are considerable. These responsibilities include providing a godly environment for instruction, teaching children to obey the first commandment by loving God with their minds, Evaluating Christian and secular school systems by the same standard and recognizing the destructive impact of a secular school system would have on their, their children. And I think these things are that we have to consider. Now, having said that, I think we need public school teachers, Christian public school teachers, and we need Christian school board members. Because... We, we, the children that are being educated in public schools today are the future of the church tomorrow, even if they are from non-Christian families. We don't want, humanly speaking, their minds to be so entrenched without any influence of Christianity in their lives. So we want Christians to be in public school boards to make decisions about curriculum. We want teachers that are able to work Christ into whatever they're doing. But that doesn't mean that our children are the best people to do that. Because there's, in the training process, they're not there yet. Any questions or comments? Any? I'm really sorry. Yeah, I'm really sorry about your experience, and uh, I wish you had a had a better experience. But again, uh, experience is not the ultimate determining what, what's right and wrong, um, because we even as we go through experiences, right? Like when I go through my wife, my wife does something, 
and I interpret it as something that's against me. That's the me experience at the moment, right? And then I think, okay, who is she? She loves me. She cares for me. She's a dear saint in Jesus Christ. And then I now start interpreting her experience to that, and I say, wait, my experience is not determined, really, of how my wife deals with me. Uh, there's an objective way. So I'm really sorry for your experience, and I'm not denying that there are bad experiences, because we have still people who are being sanctified by Jesus Christ, they still have a struggle with their, our flesh. But individual experiences, as hard as they are, and as meaningful as they are, don't, are not the objective standard we should use to make principles for, for everyone. Okay? Anything else? All right. Now, I, the, the solution is prayer. It's faithful to the Lord. It's investment. Um, are there Christian schools in the area that we can be involved with as this congregation, as people? Are there school boards that we have access we can become? Or are, do we need to start a Christian school in the area? Do we need to, provo- do we need to be, as a congregation, this is not the mission of the church, but as a congregation, do we need to be helping homeschooling parents um, uh, and, and we need to be helping people financially, uh, either be through money or through working with them through their budgets to make sure that there's room for these, these things. But all of it is very countercultural. And it is sacrificial. It's not... Um, it, uh, your older people, like me, might remember the first Jurassic Park. Right? What's his name? Goldman... Gold Blumen, huh? Jeff Goldman, is that his name? And he's the math specialist, right? In the, in the show, and they're right in the car, and they drop. He drops water on his hands, and then ask, "Why did the water take that path?" He says, "Well, because everything normally works by taking the path of least resistance. That's the water took that, and that's true of us too. We tend to take the path of temporal least resistance." And yet, segmented stent describes this life not a easy life, but as a war. And wars are not easy. Wars are not convenient. But what happens if you what happens if Ukraine loses the war with Russia? There is no more Ukraine. That's the end of it, right? We're fighting a similar war. If 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 it were possible, if we lose this war, there is no more church. Now, Christ is going to build this church independent of how faithful or unfaithful we are. But that's our call, to fight for home in the training of our kids. All right? Happy to talk to anybody over lunch. If you, if you see, think I'm misusing the scriptures, I'm happy to talk about uh, that as well. But if, if, if your thoughts are this, I know the Bible says this, but then before you come and talk to me, I want you to pray about it and realize what you're saying. That you know what the scriptures say, but you have a better way. And, and think about that, okay? So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains everything for life and practice and faith. Enable us, enable us by your spirit to live it out for us in Jesus' name. Amen.